arms. Give it your all. We'll drink the wine to the corpse dry and kiss the girls and then the cry and toss the dice until we fly and dance for Jack of the Shadows. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Tales of a Red Arm. I'm your host, Justin, and today we're jumping into Chapter 3, Reflection. So, we've been jumping around from different points of view, but now we're jumping back to Perrin's point of view. And we're starting out with him and Fael, uh continuing on to Rand. Um, they were already going to Rand's. Uh, but we didn't get very far with that before it changed uh, points of view. So this is all kind of like layered on top of each other. Um, so after the attacks on both Perrin and Matt, they want answers from Rand, but Matt doesn't want to go to Rand. And uh, Perrin's just kind of like, I want to go give him a piece of my mind and be like, Why, why'd you do this? And Rand also had his little bout with themselves, I guess would be the proper way to say it. <laughs> Himselves, as in all of them that attacked him that were him, but that weren't him. So needlessly um Parent and Fayel are kinda going down the hallways of the stone tier and they have you know servants going by and it's really busy considering it's really late at night. Um, mostly because we'll find out later on it's the best time for the servants to be out. Um, even soldiers are surprised to see both Perrin and Fayil walking down. I mean, again, this is the normal time people would be going to sleep, not walking around the halls. So there's a couple lamps every once in a while. It's, it's very, very dim comparative to when it's more active and more people like the High Lords are walking through. Um... And but in anyone's situation other than parents, their eyes, you know, would just see shadows blurred against tapestries and whatever. But of course, Perrin can see through that. But his eyes glowed like burnished gold in these murky lengths of hall. Um, he walks quickly from lamp to lamp and has his gaze down until he's in full light because, you know, most people in the stone know he has strangely colored eyes, but they don't talk about it, but even Fayil seemed to assume the color was part of his association with, you know, I said die. just was. Just accept it, and that's that. But his eyes also shine in the dark. So it gives another feel to it, and, and an additional concern for him to worry about, if that makes sense. Um... He's like, I wish they wouldn't look at me like that. And then a grizzled defender, twice his age, it's about 40, um, came close to running once he had passed. He's like, you know, they're like they're afraid of me, but they haven't been before, not this way, but why aren't these people in bed? And there's a woman carrying a mop and a bucket, you know, bobbing a curtsy and keeping her head down. And Fayil has her arm entwined with his. And it's like, well, the guards are not supposed to be in this part of the stone, I don't think, unless they're on duty. A good time to cuddle a maid on a lord's chair and maybe pretend they're the lord and lady while lord and lady are asleep. They're probably worried that you might report them. The servants do most of their work at night. Who'd want them underfoot, sweeping and dusting and polishing in daylight? So, which is kind of how we jumped to that really quickly. And parents are like, yeah, I suppose, but not really believing it. 
And he's like, well, I guess she would know, considering her father's house. A successful merchant probably had servants and guards for his wagons, but these folk were not out of their beds because they happened to have... Because what happened to him had happened to them, too. Um, I'd like you to tuck away for later when reference to her father's house and stuff. Um, the successful merchant having servants and guards for his wagon. Just tuck that away for later. So, and if the things that had happened to him had happened to the servants, they would be out of the stone altogether, probably still running. But he had been the target singled out. He's not looking forward to talking to Rand about it, but he got... He, he has to know. And Fael had to pick up her pace just to keep up with him. And there's a little, like this this chapter is absolutely filled with descriptions of all the things you might find in the stones here. Not super crazy necessary, just helps you build the scene. But um it does explain things like there's a whole bunch of murder holes and all that stuff, because it's designed for war, even on the interior, separate from, you know, all the, the grandeur and shiny objects. Um, so they got murder holes on the ceiling, wherever the corridors crossed, uh, never used arrow slits peeking into the halls. Um, he and Fayil climbed narrow curving staircase after narrow curving staircase, all built into the walls or else enclosed, the more arrow slits looking down on the corridor below. None of this design had hampered the Aiel, of course, the first enemy ever to get beyond the outer wall. So they trot up the winding stairs, but Perrin doesn't realize they're trotting, but he would have been moving faster if it wasn't for Fayil on his arm. He catches a whiff of old sweat and a scent of the hint of sickly sweet perfume, and it registers kind of in the back of his brain, but he's like, he doesn't. He doesn't really think about anything. But he's like, "Ran, why did you try to kill me? Are you going mad already?" And he doesn't have an easy way to ask. But he doesn't expect the answers to be simple or easy. But he steps out into a shadowed corridor, nearly at the top of the stone. Finds himself staring at the backs of a high lord and two personal guards or bodyguards, if you will. But only the defenders were allowed to wear armor inside the stone. But these three had their swords at their hips. Which is not unusual, but their presence on this floor in the shadows, staring intently at the bright light at the far end of the hall, was not very usual. So the light comes from an anteroom in front of the chambers that Ran had been given, or taken, or maybe even pushed into by Moraine. Perrin and Fayil made no effort to be quiet and climb the stairs, but the three men were so intent in their watching that none of them noticed the new arrivals. Then one of the blue-coated bodyguards <clears throat> twisted his head as if working a cramp in his neck, and his mouth dropped open when he saw them. He bites off an oath and whirls around, bearing a good hand of his sword blade. The other was only a heartbeat slower, and both stood tense, but their eyes shifted uneasily despite being ready, sliding off of parents. And they have a sour smell of fear, he notices. So did the High Lord, but he had his fear tightly reined. The High Lord Torian. White streaking his dark, pointed beard, moved languidly, as if at a ball, pulling a too-sweetly-scented handkerchief from his sleeve. He dabbed out a knobby nose that appeared not at all large when compared with his ears. A fine silk coat with red satin cuffs only exaggerated the plainness of his face. 
He eyed Perrin's shirt sleeves and dabbed his nose again before inclining his head slightly. The lights illumine you, he said politely. And his glance touches Perrin's yellow stare and flinched away, though his expression did not change. You are well, I trust. Perhaps too politely. Perrin doesn't really care for the man's tone, but the way Torian looked Fayil up and down with a sort of casual interest clenched his fists. He managed to keep his voice level, though. The light illumine you, High Lord Torian. I am glad to see you helping keep watch over the Lord Dragon. Some men in your place might resent him being here. Torian's thin eyebrows twitched. Prophecy has been fulfilled, and Tyr has fulfilled its place in that prophecy. Perhaps the Dragon Reborn will lead Tyr to a still greater destiny. What man could resent that? But it is late. A good night to you. He eyed Fayil again, pursing his lips, and walked off down the hall just a bit too briskly, away from the anteroom's lights. His bodyguards healed him like a well-trained dog's. There is no need for you to be uncivil, Fael said in a tight voice when the High Lord was out of hearing. You sounded as if your tongue were frozen iron. If you intend to remain here, you had better learn to get on with the Lords. He was looking at you as if he wanted to dandle you on his knee. And I do not mean like a father. She sniffed dismissively. He is not the first man ever to look at me. If he found the nerve to try more, I could put him in his place with a frown and a glance. I do not need you to speak for me, Perrin Abara. Still, she did not sound entirely displeased. So, it's a funny little interaction, I guess. Um, I haven't done too many of the uh, voice acting in a while, so this is a nice little warm-up. Uh, hopefully we'll get more of that this book. It usually depends on the sections and if it fits, I guess, naturally. Otherwise, I usually just cover it normally. Um, but he scratches his beard and looks after Torian. And they vanish around a corner. And he's trying to figure out how the Tyrant Lords managed without sweating to death. And he's like, did you notice, Fael? His heel hounds did not take their hands off their swords until he was ten paces clear of us. And she like frowns and looks down at the other, looks down the hall and nods slowly. He's like, you know, yeah, I don't understand, but they don't bow and scrape the way they do for him, Rand. But everyone else walks warily as around you and Matt as they do around the Aes Sedai. Maybe being a friend of the dark or the dark one. <laughs> it's not the dark one. Maybe being a friend of the Dragon Reborn isn't as much protection as it used to be. But she doesn't, you know suggests leaving again and in words but her eyes are just beaming at him with basically the words he was more successful in ignoring the unspoken suggestion than he had been with the spoken but they, ended, they about are each ending bleh, sorry they're reaching the end of the hallway and Berylaine comes hurrying out with the bright lights of the anteroom clutching a thin white robe tightly around with both arms if the first Mayenne had been walking any faster she would have been running to show Fael he could be civil as possibly, Perrin swept a bow that he wagered even Matt could not have bettered. By contrast, Fael's curtsy was the barest nod of her head, the merest bending of a knee. 
He hardly noticed, as Berylene rushed past them without a glance. The smell of fear, rank and raw as a festering wound, made his nostrils twitch. Beside this, Torian's fear was nothing. This was mad panic tied with frayed rope. He straightened a little bit and stared after her. Jvail's like, oh, filling your eyes? But he's still watching Berylene, trying to figure out what drew her near the brink of fear. He's like, she smelled of... But then, down the corridor, Torian suddenly steps out of the sided hallway and seizes Berylene's arm. He's talking a torrent, but Perrin could not make out more than a handful of scattered words. Something about her overstepping, overstepping herself in pride, and something else that seemed to be Torian offering her his protection. Her reply was short, sharp, and even more inaudible, delivered from a lifted chin. Pulling herself free roughly, the first man walked away, back straight and seeming more in command of herself. Torian seems to be wanting to follow, but then saw Perrin watching, dabs his nose with his handkerchief, and then vanished back into the crossing corridor. Fahil's like, I don't care if she smelled of the essence of dawn. That one is not interested in hunting a boar. Or a bear. However fine his hide would look stretched on the wall, she hunts the sun. Perrin is clearly confused. It's like, the sun? A bear? What are you talking about? Fahil's like... You go on by yourself. I think I'll go to bed after all. And it's like, well, okay, but I thought you were eager to find out what happened as I am. She's like, nah, I don't think so. I'm not really that eager to meet the Rand after avoiding it until now, and now I'm really not eager to. But no doubt you guys will have a fine talk without me, especially if there's wine. And he's like, you don't make any sense. But if you want to go to bed, that's fine, but I wish you would say something I understand. She studies his face and then bites her lip. And he thinks she's trying not to laugh. And she's like, oh, Perrin, sometimes I believe it is your innocence I enjoy most of all. Well, Perrin is notoriously innocent. Technically, all three of them are extremely innocent, until forced to not be. So traces of her laughter slivered her voice. And she's like, oh, go on to your friend and tell me in the morning as much as you want. She pulls his head down, gives him a kiss. And then, as soon as the kiss is over, just runs back down the hallway. But he shakes his head, and she turns down the stairs with no signs of Torian. And, you know, it's like she's speaking a different language, which probably is, <laughs> at least to him. But he has stores of lights, and he heads into the anteroom, and it's about 50 paces or more across, with 100 gilded lamps hanging on gold chains from the ceiling. A bunch of extra descriptions. But... It had been the anteroom of the king's chambers in the days when Tyr had kings, before Otter Hawkwing put everything from the spine of the world to the Arath Ocean under one king. The Tyran, uh, Tyran kings had not returned when Hawkwing's empire collapsed, and for a thousand years the only inhabitants of these apartments had been mice tracking through dust. No high lord had ever had enough power to dare claim them for his own. A ring of fifty defenders stood rigidly in the middle of the room, breastplates and rimmed helmets gleaming, spears all slanted at the exact same angle. Facing every direction as they did, they were supposed to keep all intruders from the current Lord of the Stone. Their commander, a captain distinguished by two short white plumes on his helmet, holds himself only a little bit less stiffly. He posed one hand on the sword hilt and the other on his hip, self-important with his duty. They all smelled of fear and uncertainty. 
the men who had lived under a crumbling cliff and almost managed to convince themselves it would never fall. At least not tonight. Well, okay, maybe not in the next hour. <laughs> Just, I love the sense of humor in this. So he thinks he's self-important, and Perrin just heads towards him, and the officer starts towards him, but then when Perrin did not seem to stop at being challenged, he knew Perrin was, obviously, but he still hesitates, as much as any tyrant knows. Traveling companion of Aes Sedai, friend of the Lord Dragon, not a man to be interfered with by a mere officer of the Defenders of the Stone. But there is his apparent task of guarding the Lord Dragon's rest, obviously, but... He doesn't want to admit to himself. The officer had to know that he and his brave show of polished armor were simply that. The real guards were those Perrin met when he strode beyond the columns and approached the doors to Rand's chambers. And here we get the little description that we all really would like to have, because they're funny. <sighs> and also intriguing and interesting at the same time. I don't know how to mix that together, but somehow I do. It's a blender. They had been sitting so still behind the columns that they seemed to fade into the stone though their coats and breeches, in shades of grey and brown made to hide them in the waist, stood out here as soon as they moved. Six maidens of the spear, Aiel women who had chosen a warrior's life over the hearth, flowed between him and the doors on soft-laced boots that reached their knees. They were tall for women, the tallest barely a hand shorter than he, sun-darkened with short-cropped hair yellow, or red, or something in between. Two held curved horn bows with arrows knocked, if not drawn. The others carried small hide bucklers and three or four short spears each. <laughs> short, but with spearheads long enough to stick through a man's body, with inches to spare. And a woman with flame-colored hair says, smiles and says, I do not think I can let you go in. Aiel don't grin, much like other folk, but show they don't really show any great deal of emotion outside of, you know, war. <laughs> it's like, I don't think he wants to see anyone tonight. He's like, Bane, I'm going in. And he just ignores her spears and just took her by the upper arms. That was when it became impossible to ignore the spears, since she had managed to get a spear point against the side of his head, of, of his throat. And for that matter, a little bit blonder woman, slightly, Chiad, suddenly had one of her spears at the other side, as if the two were intending to meet somewhere in the middle of his neck. The other women only watched, just confident that Bane and Chiad could handle whatever had to be done. But he does his best, and he's like, I don't have time to argue with you. Not that you listen to people who argue with you, as I remember. I'm going in. As gently as he could, he picked Bane up and set her out of his way. Chiad's spear only needed her to breathe on it to draw blood, but after one startled widening of dark eyes, Bane abruptly took hers away and grinned. Would you like to learn a game called Maiden's Kiss, Perrin? You might play well, I think. At the very least, you would learn something. But one of the others laugh laughs aloud really loudly. Chiad's spear point left his neck. But he takes a deep breath, hoping they didn't notice that it's the first one he had taken since the spears touched him. They had not veiled their faces. Their shoe fillet coiled around their necks like dark scarves, but he did not know if Aiel had to do so before they killed. Only that veiling meant that they were ready to do so. It's like, maybe a different time, politely uh, declining them. 
But they're all grin grinning as if Bane had said something amusing. But he didn't understand their humor. Now, it, the, find, the reason they find it all really funny is because Maiden's Kiss is what we learned from Matt. So, good thing the order was in the order it was, so we understand what that means. Maiden's Kiss is basically, you know, are you willing to bleed to make out? And then, basically, if you impress me with your kisses, you don't get nicked. If you don't impress me, you do get nicked. And that's kind of the joke. They think it's funny because, you know, that's what they do to people, apparently. I can't imagine there's that many people who participate in it because the IEL men should be more than intelligent enough to be able to go, you know, not worth it. But then they might be too stubborn to think about otherwise. But Tom was right. A man could go crazy trying to understand women of any nation and any station in life. That was what Tom said. And he's not wrong. But he reaches for the door handle in the shape of a rearing golden lion. Bane adds, oh, on your head, be it. He'd already chased out what most men would consider better company by far than you. He's thinking, ah, Bear Lane, of course. She was on her way back from here. Tonight, everything is revolving around. But Bear Lane disappears from his thoughts as he looks into the room. Broken mirrors hanging on the walls, broken glass covering the floor, shards of shattered porcelain and feathers from slashed mattress. Open books tumbled among overturned chairs and benches. And Rand, sitting at the foot of his bed, slumped against one of the bedposts with his eyes closed and hands limp atop Calendor, which lay across his knees. He looked as if he had taken a bath in blood. Perrin yells at the Aiel, Get Moraine! Is Rand still alive? But if he needed Aes Sedai healing to stay that way, you know, if he wasn't still alive... Tell her to hurry, and the air a gasp, and then soft boots running. Rand lifted his face with a smeared mask. He's like, shut the door. He's like, Morin will be here soon, Rand. Rest easy, she will. He's like, shut the door, Perrin. The Aiel frowned, but moved back, and Perrin pulls the door to... pulled the door to cut off questioning from the white-plumed officer. Glass crunched under his boots as he crossed the carpet to Rand, tearing a strip from the wildly sliced linen sheet, and he wads it up to bind Rand's side, and Rand's hands tightened on the transparent sword at the pressure, then relaxed. Blood soaked basically through it immediately. Cuts and gashes covered him from the soles of his feet to his head, slivers of glass glittering in many of them. Perrin rolled his shoulders helplessly. He didn't know what else he could do other than wait for Moraine. And he asks Rand, like, what under the light did you try to do? You look as though you tried to skin yourself, and you nearly killed me as well. But he didn't think that Rand was going to answer. Then Rand finally whispers, you know, not me. It's one of the Forsaken. And Perrin trying to relax his muscles, he didn't remember tensing. It was only partially successful. He mentioned the Forsaken to Fael, and not exactly casually, but by and large, he'd been trying not to think of what the Forsaken might do, and they found out where Rand was. If one of them could bring down the Dragon Reborn, he or she would stand high above the others when the Dark One broke free. The Dark One free in the last battle lost before it was fought. He's like, are, are you sure? He's like, it's gotta be, Baron. It has to be. I was like, well, one of them came after me as well as you, but where's Matt, Rand? If he's alive and went through what I did, he'd, he'd be thinking what I did. That was you. He'd be here right now to bless you out. 
Rand kind of was like, well, that or, you know, halfway through the city gates on a horse. Drying blood smears cracked and fresh trickled started on his chest and shoulders. He's like, well, if he's dead, Perrin, you'd best get as far from me as you can. Loyal and you are right about that. And he studies Perrin. He's like, you and Matt must wish I had never been born, or at least you'd never seen me. There's no point in checking if anything else had happened to Matt. It's over and done now. But he has his makeshift bandage pressed against Rand's side, trying to see what keeps him alive long enough to get Moraine there so he doesn't just bleed out. Well, he don't seem to care if he has gone. Burn me, he's important too. What are you going to do if he's gonna actually gone or dead? The Light Senate, not so. And Rand's like, well, whatever they don't expect. That is what I have to do in any case. What everyone least expects. And Perrin takes a slow breath. And Rand had a right to taut nerves. It's not a sign of in incipient madness. You had to stop watching for signs of madness. Those signs would come soon enough, and watching would not help him in any way, but leave his stomach tied in knots. He's like, what's that? He's like, I only know that I have to catch them by surprise, Perrin. Catch everyone by surprise. The door finally opens up to admit a tall Aielman, his dark red hair touched with gray. Behind him, the tyrant officer's plumes bobbed as he argued with the maidens. And he was still arguing when Bane pushed the door shut. Ruark surveyed the room with sharp blue eyes, as if he suspected enemies hiding behind the drape or an overturned chair. The clan chief of the Tardad Aiel had no visible weapon except the heavy-bladed knife at his waist, but he carried authority and confidence like weapons. Quietly. But they were definitely there, just as much as that sheathed knife. His shufa hung about his shoulders... No one who knew the slightest about Aiel took one for less than dangerous when he wore the means to veil his face. That fool tyrant outside sent word to his commander that something had happened in here, and rumors are already sprouting like corpse moss in a deep cave. Everything from the White Tower trying to kill you to the last battle fought here in this room. Perrin was about to open his mouth, but Ruark forestalled him. I happened to meet Berylaine, looking as if she had been told the day she would die, and she told me the truth of it. And it does look to be the truth, though I doubted her. Parents like, I sent for Moraine, and then Ruark nods to him. He's like, of course, the maids would have told him everything they knew. Rand barks, and he's like, I told her to keep quiet. It seems like the Lord Dragon doesn't rule Mayenne. Ruark's like, I have daughters older than that young woman. I do not believe she will tell anyone else. I think she would like to forget everything that happened tonight. And Moraine shows up going, I would like to know what happened. And her description is slight and slender as she was. Ruark towered over her as much as the man who followed her in. Lan, her warder. But the Aes Sedai is the one who dominates the room. She had to come fast, so she must have ran. But she's calm as a frozen lake now. And it took a great deal to ruffle Moraine's serenity. Her blue silk gown had a high lace neck and sleeves slashed with darker velvet. But the heat humidity did not appear to touch her. A small blue stone suspended on her forehead from a fine golden chain and her dark hair flashed in the light, emphasizing the absence of the slightest sheen of sweat. 
And like every single time they meet, Lan and Ruark's icy blue stares nearly struck sparks. A braided leather cord held Lan's dark hair, gray streaked at the temples. His face looked to have been carved from rock, all hard planes and angles, and his sword rode his hip like part of his body. Perrin was not sure which of the two men was more deadly, but he thought that a mouse could starve on the dis difference. Lan swings his eyes to Ran. He's like, I thought you were old enough to shave without someone to guide your hand. Ruhark smiles, a slight smile, but that's the first he'd ever seen from him in Lan's presence. Eh, he's young yet. He'll learn. Lan looked back at Ruark and returned the smile just as slightly. Moraine looked at the two men, giving them a withering look. She did not seem to pick her way as she crossed the carpet, but she stepped so lightly, holding her skirts up, that not one shard of glass crunched under her slippers. Her eyes swept the room, taking in every detail, even the small ones. For a moment she studies him, but he doesn't meet her gaze. She knew too much about him for comfort. But she falls upon Rand like a silent silken avalanche, icy and inexorable. Perrin drops his hand and moves out of the way, and the wadded cloth still stayed against Rand's side, held by congealing blood. From head to foot, the blood was beginning to dry in black streaks and smears. The slivers of glass in his skin glittered in the lamplight but Moraine touches the blood-caked cloth with her fingertips, then takes her hand back as though changing her mind about looking underneath. My assumption here is that she used the delving. And if you're not familiar with delving, delving is basically like when you go to a doctor and they give you an analysis of what's going on with you, and they're like, hey... You've got bleeding on your, you know, inner lung or something, and, you know, you're going to be coughing up blood soon, so we got to do X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. Like, it basically just gives you an analysis of what's what the problem is. So that's my assumption is that's what she did. Um, but it is what it is. But all she had to do was basically touch him to find out that kind of thing. Because delving, as far as the series explains that I can recall, uh, has to be to I touch as well as healing. But she's like, well, at least you're alive. What happened can wait. Let's let's try to get you to touch the true source. She seems kind of angry, but also kind of chill and musical. And Rand's like, Why? I can't heal myself even if I knew how to heal. Nobody can. I know that much. Which is a very important piece of information. You can't heal yourself. Thus the age-old adage, physician, heal thyself. Um, but Moraine seems to be on the brink of an outburst. But she's like, only some of the strength for healing comes from the healer. The power can replace what comes from the healed. Without it, you will spend tomorrow flat on your back and perhaps the next day as well. Now draw on the power, if you can, but do nothing with it. Simply hold it. Use this if you must. She did not have to bend far to touch Kalendor. But Rand moves the sword from underneath her hand. He's like, oh, simply hold it, you say. 
And he sounds like he's about to laugh. But he's like, all right, I'll give it a shot. But nothing happens that Perrin could see, not that he expected to. And the reason this is, is because Menhick Channel are able to see the the weaves or the ability embracing the source and stuff like that. Uh, women can't see men and men can't see women. Uh, um, weaves or embracing of the source. There are technically ways to hide it, but that's not for a long time in the future, probably. Um, but Perrin doesn't channel, so he can't see it, obviously. Moran just sits there looking at Moraine. She doesn't blink. But then Rand sighs. He's like, I can't even reach the void. I can't seem to concentrate. And a quick grin cracks the blood drying on his face. He's like, I don't understand why. With a, thin red, a thick red thread snaking its way down past his left eye. Moraine's like, well, then I'll just do it the way I always have. And then she takes Rand... Rand's head in her hands, careless of the blood running over her fingers. But Rand lurched to his feet with a roaring gasp, as if the breath were being squeezed from his lungs, with his back arching so his head nearly tore free from her grasp. One arm flung wide, fingers spread and bending back so far it seemed they must break. But his other hand was clamped down on Kalindor's hilt, the muscles of the arm nodding visibly under the cramps. He shook like a cloth caught in a windstorm, dark flakes of dried blood falling and bits of glass tinkling onto the chest and the floor, forced out of the cuts, closing up and knitting themselves together. The parent shivers as if the windstorm rode around him. He had seen healing done before, but that and more, greater and worse, but he could never be complacent about seeing the one power he used about knowing it was being used, not even for this. Tales of Aes told by merchant's guards and drivers, had embedded themselves in his mind long years before he met Moraine. Ruark smelled sharply uneasy. Only Lan took it as a matter of fact, of course, you know, Lan and Moraine. And almost as soon as it began, it was done. Which is important to know that it's kind of like, uh... It's, it's, it's like the description of the reaction seems like a very long reaction. And it kind of was because it's like a whole paragraph. But in reality, it's basically like almost like a defibrillator or something. Or you just like <laughs> you shock them and then, you know, that pours through their body and heals what needs to be healed. So Moraine removes her hands and Rand slumps catching the bedpost to hold himself on his feet. And it was difficult to say whether he clutched the bedpost or calendar more tenaciously. But when Moraine tries to take the sword to put it on the ornate stand, he pulls it away from her firmly, I mean, even a little bit roughly. But her mouth tightens for a second, and she contents herself with pulling the wad of cloth from his side, using it to scrub away some of the surrounding smears. And the old wound was a tender scar again. The other injuries are just simply gone. Mostly dried blood that still covered him would have come from someone else. Moraine's like, well, it still doesn't respond. It won't heal completely, referring to the uh, wound in his, the old wound in his side. It's like, oh, the one that's going to kill me, huh? His blood on the rocks of Shale Ghoul, washing away the shadow, sacrifice for man's salvation. 
She's like, you read too much and understand too little. Which is the case of most people. He's like, oh, so you know more? Please do tell me. And Land's like, he's only trying to find his way. No man likes to run forward blindly when he knows there's a cliff somewhere ahead. But Perrin is like a little surprised and shocked. Land almost never disagreed with Moraine, or at least not where someone else could overhear. He and Rand had been spending a good deal of time together, though, practicing the sword. Moraine's dark eyes flash, but what she says is, He needs to be in bed. Will you ask the wash water be brought and another bedchamber prepared? This one needs a thorough cleaning and a new mattress. But Land nods and puts his head into the anteroom for the moment, but speaks quietly. But Rand's like, I'm going to sleep here, Moraine. I won't be chased anymore, not even out of the bed. He's grounding Calendar's point in the littered carpet and resting both of his hands on the hilt, like he's leaning on the sword. It doesn't show very much. Land says, Tyshar Manetherin. But now even Ruark looks startled. But if Moraine heard the water compliment Rand, she gave no sign of it. She stared at Rand. And the funny part of the thing about Tyshar Manetherin is that the only thing about basically Rand and Manetherin having anything in common, is essentially he was raised there. That's about it. In every other situation, he's not Manetherin. He's not from Manetherin, so he's not technically a Manetherarian. If that's what, you, what do you what do you call people of Manetherin? Manetherians? Manetherinians? Manetherian? Manetherinians? That's a very hard thing to say quickly. But Moraine, you know, doesn't really pay attention to his compliment, but she stares at Rand, but her face is smooth, but thunderheads are in her eyes, and Rand wears a quizzical little smile, as if he knows what she's trying to do next. So Perrin slowly edges towards the doors, and if Rand and the Aes Sedai were going to, you know, start duking it out through the Battle of Wills, he'd just rather be somewhere else. Land didn't seem to care, but it's hard to tell with that stance of his, somehow standing with his back straight and slouching at the same time. He could have been bored enough to sleep somewhere he stood or ready to draw his sword out. The way he's behaving could have been either, or maybe both at the same time. And Rourke stands pretty much the same way, but he was eyeing the doors as well. <laughs> this is where it gets funny, where Moraine doesn't even look away from Ran and just yells, Stay where you are! Flinging her finger pointed halfway between Perrin and Rourke, but Perrin's feet stopped at the same time. Rourke shrugged and folded his arms. Moraine's like, stubborn. And this was for Rand, obviously. Like, well, all right. If you mean to stand there until you drop, you can use the time before you fall on your face to tell me what happened. I cannot teach you. In other words, you can't teach him to channel. But if you tell me, perhaps I can see what you did wrong. A small chance. But maybe I can. And she's like, you have to learn to control it. I do not mean just because of things like this. If you do not learn to control the power, it will kill you. You know that. I've told you often enough. You have to teach yourself. You must find it within yourself. It's like... It didn't, I didn't do anything except survive. But before she could open her mouth, he goes on. It's like, do you think I could channel and not know it? I didn't do it in my sleep. This happened awake. But he wavered and catches himself on the sword. She's like, well, even you couldn't channel anything but spirit asleep. So this is a standard for channeling in general, is that if you're sleeping, you can only channel spirit. You can't channel the other four powers. 
Moraine's like, well, and this was not, this was never done with the spirit. I was just about to ask what did happen. And Perrin hears Rand's story and his hackles rise. The axe had been bad enough, but at least the axe was something solid and real. You know, imagine having your reflection jump out of mirrors at you. But he shifts his feet unconsciously, you know, trying not to stand on any of the glass. But after he begins speaking, Rand glanced behind him at the chest, at least a quick look. So he doesn't want it observed, but after a moment, the slivers of slivered glass. I'm not doing this right. Slivers of silvered glass. It's really hard when they, it's just an L and an I swap. But the sliver, the slivers of sliver, ah, slivers of silvered glass were scattered across the lid of the chest, stirred and slid off the carpet as though he pushed in the unseen broom. Rand exchanged looks with Moraine, then sat down slowly and goes on. It's like not, Perrin's not sure which of them had cleared the chest top, but there's no mention of Berylaine in the tale. And Rand's like, it must have been one of the Forsaken. Probably Samael. You said he's in Ilion. Unless one of them he's here in Tyr. Could Samael reach the stone from Ilion? Moraine's like, not even if he held Kalendor. There are limits. Samael is only a man, not the Dark One. Now, the funny thing about this, they're like, Samael can't do this from Ilion. It's like, why does he need to be an Ilion? I don't see that there's a reason for a requirement of him being an Ilion, so that's just kind of strange. But Perrin's like, only a man? That's not a very good description. <laughs> a man who could channel but somehow hadn't gone mad, at least not yet, not that anyone knows of. A man perhaps as strong as Rand, but where Rand was trying to learn, Samael knew every trick of his talents already. A man who had spent 3,000 years trapped in the Dark One's prison. A man who had gone over to the shadow of his own choice. Now, only a man didn't begin to describe Samael or any of the Forsaken, male or female. And Rand's like, well, then somebody, one of them has to be in the city, at least. I'll not be chased again. I won't be the hound, or I'll be the hound first. I will find him or her, and I will. And Moraine's like, no, not one of the Forsaken. I don't think so. This is too simple and too complex. And Rand's like, okay, Moraine, out with it. No riddles. If it's not the Forsaken, who or what? Yeah, Moraine's face could have done for an anvil, and she's hesitating, just like, well, as the seals holding the Dark One's prison weaken, it may be inevitable that a miasma will escape even while he is still held, like bubbles rising from the things rotting on the bottom of a pond. These bubbles will drift through the pattern until they attach to a thread and burst. So, this is technically described in the general chat of things, as a bubble of evil. Um, to kind of help make it seem easier to understand. It's not a controlled thing. It's not someone using the power to cause something to happen. It's literally something distorting and corrupting the pattern in some shape or form. But not very much. Like, it's, it's, it's a very controlled thing. And he, parents like, light! You mean, what happened to to Rand is going to happen to everybody? It's like, no, not everyone. I mean, in the beginning, I think there will be only a few bubbles. 
slipping through the cracks the Dark One can reach. But later, who can say? Just as Taviran bend the other threads in the pattern around them, I think perhaps Taviran will tend to attract these bubbles more powerfully than others do. But her eyes let him know that she knows that Rand was not the only one to have a waking nightmare. And a brief, a brief smile touched her lips. And then it was there and gone immediately. He could keep silent if he wished to hold the secret from the others, but she knows. Oh, she knows. Yet in the months to come, she continues, the years should be lucky enough to live that long. I fear a good many people will see things to give them white hairs if they survive. And Rand's like, Matt, do you know if he... Maureen's like, I'll know soon enough. What is done cannot be undone, but we can hope. Regardless of the tone, she smelled a little bit ill at ease. And then Ruark speaks. And he's like, he is well, or at least was, when I saw him on my way here. And Maureen's like, going where? A little bit of an edge in her voice, like she's worried. He seems to be heading for the servants' quarters. He knew that the th three were Taviran, but nothing else. He knew Matt well enough to add, not the stables, I said I. The other way, toward the river. And there are no boats at the stone's dock. He didn't stumble over the words boat and dock the way most Aiel did, although in the waste such things existed only in stories. She nods as if he expected nothing else. Perrin shakes his head. She's so used to hiding her real thoughts. Seems to veil them out of habit. Then a door opened, and Bane and Chiad slept in without their spears. Bane was carrying a large white bowl and a fat pitcher with steam rising from the top, and Chiad had towels folded under her arm. And Maureen's like, why are you bringing this? And Chiad's just like, eh, she would not come in. And Rand's like, huh, even the servants know enough to stay clear of me. Put it anywhere. And Moraine's like, all right, Rand, your time is running out. The tyrants are becoming used to you after a fashion. And no one fears what is familiar as much as what is strange. How many weeks or days before someone tries to put an arrow in your back or poison in your food? I technically could have done that already. How long before one of the forsaken strikes or another bubble comes sliding from the pattern, across the pattern? He's like, don't try to hurry me or harry me, Moraine. He was blood filthy, half naked, more than half leaning on Calendor to stay sitting up, but he managed to fill those words with quiet command. I will not run for you either. And she's like, choose your way. And this time inform me of what you mean to do. My knowledge cannot aid you if you refuse to accept my help. He's like, your help? I'll take your help, but I will decide. Not you. He looks at Perrin as if he's trying to tell him something without actually saying anything. Something he doesn't want the others to hear, but Perrin didn't have a clue what it was, but then Rand kind of sighs, and he's like, I want to sleep. All of you go away. Please, we'll talk later, tomorrow. But his eyes flicker to Perrin, underscoring that the words were for Perrin, not for Moraine, Lan, Ruark, or Bane Chiad. But Moraine crosses the room to Bane and Chiad, and the two Aya women lean close so she could speak for their ears alone. And Perrin could only hear a buzz, and he wonders if she's using the power to stop him from eavesdropping. She knew the keenness of his hearing. He was then confirmed of it when Bane whispered back and he still couldn't make out anything. Yael had done nothing but a sense of smell. About a sense of smell, though. And the Yael women looked at 
Rand as they listened, and they smelled wary. Not afraid, but as if Rand were a large animal that could be just become dangerous if they misstepped. Then Moraine turns back to Rand. He's like, we will talk tomorrow. You cannot sit like a partridge waiting for the hunter's net. Partridge is a bird if you're not familiar with it. You know, the whole partridge in a pear tree from the Christmas songs. Um, Yeah, 12 Days of Christmas. But she moves towards the door. Land looks at Rand. is about to say something, but then follows without speaking. The parents like Rand, and he's like, "We do what we have to. We all do what we have to." But he seems kind of afraid, not looking up from Kalendor in the hilt between his hands. Baron nods and follows Ruark out of the room. Marion and Land were nowhere in sight, and the tyrant officer was staring at the doors for ten paces, trying to that his distance was his choice and had nothing to do with the four Aiel women watching him. But the other two maidens were still in the bedchamber, Perrin realized, and he heard voices from the room. Rand saying, go away, just put it down and go away. And she adds, like, well, if you could stand up, we will. Only stand. There was the sound of water splashing into a bowl. We have tended to wounded before. Bane kind of trying to sue them. He's like, and I used to wash my brothers when they were little. Because <laughs> that's supposed to help. Reassure him somehow. Ruark pushed the door shut, cutting off the rest. And Perrin's like, well, you don't treat him the way the tyrants do. No bowing and scraping. I don't think I've heard one of you call him Lord Dragon. And Ruark responds, the Dragon Reborn is a wetlander prophecy. Ours is he who comes with the dawn. I thought they were the same. Else why did you come to the stone? Burn me, Ruark. You are I. You are you. I yield. Are the people of the dragon, just as the prophecies say. You've as good as admitted it, even if you won't say it out loud. And Ruark ignores the last part. It's like in your prophecies of the dragon, the fall of the stone, and the taking of Calendar proclaim the dragon has been reborn. Our prophecy says only that the stone must fall before he who comes with the dawn appears to take us back to what was ours. They may be one man. But I doubt even the wise ones could say for sure. If Rand is the one, there are things he must do yet to prove it. And parents like, like what? He's like, well, if he's the one, he'll know. And then do them. If he does not, our search goes on. Then there's something unreadable in the Ielman's voice pricking at parents' ears. And if he's not the one you're looking for, then, Ruark, what then? And the Ruark's soft boots made no sound on the black marble. As he walked away. Sleep well and safely, Perrin. The tyrant officer was still staring past the maiden, smelling of fear, failing to mask the anger and hatred on his face. If the Aiel decided Rand was not he who comes with the dawn, well. Perrin's study of the tyrant's officer's face and the thought of the maiden's not being there, the stone empty of Aiel, he shivered. He had to make sure if Aiel decided to leave. That was all there was for it. She had to decide to go, and not with him. And that is the end of chapter three. So, thanks guys for sticking with me on it. It's probably not nearly as entertaining as people might expect it to be, or as the previous ones. But we get a bit of a little information. We got some description of characters. We got some little history lessons. Um, learned a little bit about how the the power works. Um, 
we learned that Moraine doesn't know everything at current time period. Like, she has to learn it over time rather than instantaneously. And it seems like it's going to be a little interesting coming up because we're getting to kind of the political espionage slash political backstabbing and stuff like that. It's going to be a little bit more. So the series up to this point hadn't been too much like kind of a Game of Thrones kind of thing where it's not like all the backstabbing and all that jazz. Like that kind of happens. Like we saw all the stuff that happened in Kyrie and all that jazz. But it's it's going to become a little bit more frequent, I want to say. Not like constant by any means. It's definitely not going to be on the same level as um, Game of Thrones in terms of like it's being every page, every chapter, every book, all the time, every time, to the point of annoyance. Um, it's going to be more on the lines of it's going to pop up at very, very specific and very useful points. Like when the story is like, yeah, this is going to go down and then something happens. But it happens in a good way. It doesn't happen in like a plot contriving kind of way, which is I like about it. So, but yeah, thanks everybody for uh, hanging out. Um, if you'd like to ask a question or anything like that, um, feel free to reach out on Facebook, uh, Tales of Red Arm, or on Twitter slash X, um, which would just be at Tales of Red Arm. Or you can reach out to me directly through talesofredarm at gmail.com and ask any questions, have any comments. Um, I take hate mail just as much as I do fan mail. <laughs> um but yeah, um, you can also uh, go to those places to get the Discord servers um, link. And if you'd like to chat sometime, feel free to pop in there. Um, you can check Twitter slash X and Facebook. They should have the links posted there and kind of pinned. Um, if they don't work for some reason, feel free to reach out to me on an actual email. And I'll get you a link that works. Um, don't be afraid to ask me questions or whatever. Or just say hi. I mean, I'd love to chat with you guys. So um, thanks, everybody, for hanging about. Um, we got Chapter 4 coming up the next episode. And it might be an interesting one. It's not terribly long, but it could definitely be interesting considering the viewpoint we're switching to, and it's a little bit more sneaky. So thanks, everybody, again, and we'll see you at the next episode. Until then. We drink all night and dance all day, and on the girls will spend our pay, and when we're done, then we'll away to dance with Jack of the Shadows. We'll toss the dice however they fall And snuggle the girls be they short or tall And follow young Matt wherever he goes To dance with Jack of the Shadows We'll toss the dice however they fall And snuggle the girls be they short or tall Then follow Lord Matt wherever he goes To dance with Jack of the Shadows
We'll, we'll give, give a yell with a bloody curse And hog the mags, it could be worse Let's ride away with the dark woods first To dance with Jack of the Shadows Yeah! <laughs>